I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hello, hello, hello. Thank you for joining me once again on Q Commentator. This is episode three of series two, and my name is Nick Heath. Uh, I hope you enjoyed the last offering with Ian Robertson in our special live episode at Twickenham. It was a ton of fun, and I'm so glad so many of you got a buzz out of listening to it. Now, uh, this is a little twist in that I'm recording the introduction to this episode in a far-flung corner of the world. I'm in Okinawa, a little tropical spot to the south of Japan, uh, here reporting on the Rugby World Cup. And if you like rugby and podcasts, then please get downloading The Rugby Report, a new podcast from me and Tom May, which is aimed at being a bite-sized update from Japan every few days over the course of the World Cup. That's The Rugby Report, but enough rugby. This is all about Q Commentator, and it's all about Episode 3 of Series 2. And for this one, well, it's time to turn the radio dial to a voice synonymous with athletics, but probably more prominently boxing. Five Lives Mike Costello has been a name that's uh, grown in popularity over the last few years. The BBC have become so aware of how keenly people want to hear how he's called some fights, some rounds, um, even some punches, I imagine, uh, that they now regularly film him ringside or at least make sure there's plenty of audio for you to listen back to after a big contest. Uh, When I began with the idea of Q Commentator, I always had Barry Davis in my mind and it was once Barry kindly said yes that I knew I had to get things off and running. Um, Mike Costello Costello was probably the other name that I knew I would perhaps get a little giddy about. Uh, and a friend of mine recently classified me as someone who likes delayed grat- gratification, uh, which could well explain why I took my time to arrange at this chat with Mike, to enjoy editing it and to have it ready for you now. But I'm thrilled to say here it is. Shortly, you'll hear about Mike's first as live commentary and how he rather got ahead of himself. Um, a really big lesson, clearly, for him. Um, some very fond memories of 2012. Oh, take me back there. Um, another commentator after Miles Harrison uh, a couple of weeks ago who said that he's seen a voice teacher, or in this case, a drama coach. Um, how Twitter has changed boxing and the scoring of the boxing rounds. Uh, and uh, and Mike also refers to my conversation with Clive Tilsley. So you see, if you're tuning into Q Commentator, you're not only hearing from some of the greatest sporting voices of our time, you're in good company as a fellow listener of Mike Costello too. Um, I'd be great for a review on Apple Podcasts if that's how you listen to your audio uh, it really helps the podcast find new listeners and if you're loving them well then wouldn't it be lovely to let others delight in them too so I'd be very very grateful as always you can tweet uh, at Q Commentator if you've any feedback on any of the episodes and want to keep in touch that way so housekeeping done it gives me immense pleasure to say this is Q Commentator Mike Costello Mike Costello Thank you very much for joining us. Series two continues here on uh, on Q Commentator. You, uh, I understand, joined the BBC accounts department at the age of of sixteen. Badgered the sports room for work. Became a runner on a Saturday afternoon, running teleprinter results into the studio. Sounds like you had sport in your sights, though. Where did that come from? Um, I grew up um, loving football and tennis, and then um, when Muhammad Ali came into my orbit in the early 1970s I decided to go along to the local boxing club the Lynn in South East London with a few mates and after a while I was the only one who kept it up 
why that was, I don't know. There was just something about boxing that that grabbed me. Uh, and I boxed for 10 years, coached for a similar period. And then as I was getting more and more successful at the BBC, I was taken away from from the amount of commitment I needed to give to the youngsters that I was training at the time. And so that was basically my, my background in sport and development where, you know, I cover boxing and athletics and a lot of people say to me, you know, which do you prefer? And in terms of commentary, they're very different challenges. But in terms of passion for the sport, I always say I love athletics, but I live boxing because it's been there since I don't know when. I genuinely can't remember life without boxing being part of it. Yeah. And, and, and so that's that's how... How that kind of, if you like, osmosis has happened over, over time. When I was a, a young junior in the sports department doing all that running and eventually I got a job as a production assistant. It was at a time when some of the boys that I was coaching were getting to national championship finals, the ABA finals, at okay. a time when those ABA finals were still shown on BBC One. Right. After the news on a Friday night, Harry Carpenter commentator. It was big, big stuff. Mm. And they would see me on telly climbing up into the corner and dealing with the boxers. And they figured this kid must know something about boxing. And I got the opportunity to, to write bits and pieces, which the reporters on the sports desk would then go and voice. Eventually they said to me, look, we like what you're doing. Why don't you try to voice some of these? And so that's, that's how that. Yeah. If this is in your voice already, then it may as well come from your voice. Yeah. Yeah. And so that's how the, the process began. I see. So it wasn't necessarily a case of, of the broadcasting coming into view for you, but almost at, at that stage, your relationship with the sport and your, and your position in it dovetailed with the BBC that sort of brought that, brought that to your table. Absolutely. Because when I joined the BBC at the age of 16, having written to a number of television companies with no real idea of what I wanted to do, just that there was something about television that uh, as well as boxing that, that grabbed me and and I had no dream of, of ever getting on air I just thought that was way beyond my station at the time listening to people on television like Harry Carpenter and Reg Guthridge and in football it was John Watson and Barry Davis and Brian Moore and, and they were pretty much the only commentators on television when I was that age mm. um, doing live sport um, you know, there were single commentators attached to every sport apart from football, and that's why they all became so famous. But the thought of me ever sharing any kind of station, any kind of commentary area with them was just way beyond a dream. So I, I didn't go into the BBC with with any kind of vision of, of making this this rise up the staircase to, to becoming a full-blown commentator. It just yeah. that was way beyond my imagination. And so going from voicing these report pieces to then commentating, how did that come about? That came about um, in one instance in, in 1995, um, and I can trace it back to a couple of years earlier. They sent me on uh, a trip to cover an England cricket tour in India, um, which was fascinating. And part of the remit was to make some documentaries about sport in that area because the audience for the BBC World Service, who I was working for at the time, was dwindling. And so they, they had this big push to try to recapture the audience. And when I came back from India, the sports editor said to me, would you like to become the cricket correspondent? And I said, I don't know enough about cricket. I've told this story before, but I, I didn't want people covering boxing with the amount of knowledge that I had yeah. about cricket. I thought I'd be conning the audience. Even though over time you can learn and you mix with people and you, you're always learning about your sport yeah. every game you cover and the different people you meet and the places you go to. But I just didn't know anywhere near enough about cricket. It's amazing I, these sort of forks in the road where I imagine obviously the right people fall into the right 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 areas of specialism and certainly you have on boxing but but who else we might have had on our on our, on our sports over the last 20 30 years well, that's they, it had, and, had but, they gone, but, oh well, all right I'll stick to cricket then. And, and many others might have taken that opportunity depending on where they were in their careers at the time mm. Nick but I, I that that wasn't for me and so when the sports editor said to me well what what do you want to do and I said well I'd love to cover athletics I knew at that stage they didn't have a budget for boxing and and the international rights for big fights so the only outlet was for athletics another sport that I knew a little bit about and, and cared a lot about and and he said well the next opportunity will be the 1995 world championships and so 
Um, I did some demo tapes on cassettes linked to videotapes that I got from the BBC Sports Library. And mm. um, and he said to me, well, let's let's just have a go. Go to the, the World Championships. We'll record some rather than, than do anything live and then we'll we'll assess after that. And so, it's again, it's it's built from there. Yeah. And so doing those sort of first gigs as, as they as they could could be called what did you what did you think of of how you were after those first few what did you make of your own ability at that first championships I came away confident that I could do the job but knowing I was nowhere near the finished article mm-hmm. and and it's it's really important to to know both of those to to not be scared and to not be so lacking in confidence that you don't want to carry on but also to know that you know listening at the time to John Rawling was doing BBC radio David Coleman was still doing BBC television so you know th- those were two seriously good professionals mm. um, and it wasn't that I was attempting to match those in my first championships it was just reminding myself that you know these are the levels that at some stage you're going to have to get to and I do remember um on the first morning being so nervous even with recorded commentary that if it goes wrong well it disappears into the ether but that didn't that didn't register with me because it's still I, real for you at the time, well and it? I knew that you know the boss back home would be saying well he needs four goes at it you can't have four goes when it's live so yeah. uh, you know there, there were nerves there and, and the first commentary I did was on a heat in the 400 meters featuring Michael Johnson and Michael Johnson because he was so talented pretty much sauntered around and trotted over the line and mm. yet I was screaming and shouting like it was a yeah, uh, an Olympic gold medal final. Okay, and I could almost sense the other commentators kind of leaning over and, and, and looking around at me as if to say, "What's he on? What's he yeah. going to be like when he gets to the final?" Do you think? Do you think that was an ener- you sort of felt a need to show that you could put energy and excitement in, but but maybe actually it just didn't need it. And also, Nick, it was weeks and weeks of preparing and yeah. building up, and that was all of that nervous energy just exploded in yeah, one forty-five okay. second race. And and then after that, I kind of and, and back at base, they said, "You just you." That's fine, Mike. Description was fine, but just take it down a notch, take it down a notch. And so a very important lesson from the very first as live commentary that, that I ever did, knowing where to pitch the, not not just a race, but the segments of a race or a fight. Mm. You know, as in football, you know, if you're driving along in the car, you might kind of wander away from the commentary. But as soon as the, the commentator says, and it's in the penalty area, or it's a corner, or then you 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 start listening, and the cadence mm. should drag you in yeah. like that. Well, it's it's what I refer to. Uh, I think I have before as as the sort of um, the newspaper twitcher. So it's sitting on your armchair, even even for TV commentary, and on a Sunday afternoon, maybe it's the F one or something like that, and you you can have the paper up in front of your face reading it. But as soon as you hear the commentator go for something, suddenly the paper's down, and you and you're paying attention, and it's, it's yeah. that sort of vis- visual for me. Um, what about your voice? Obviously, there were choices that, that you might have remade in terms of that first effort, but what did you think of your voices and, and the quality of it in terms of lending it to, to broadcasting? At the time, I was, I was happy with what I was doing because I didn't really know how to measure my voice against anybody else's. I didn't have anything to measure it against in terms of previous experience. And actually, I just, rather than take on board any kind of training or or feedback and there was plenty of that it was just a a case of gaining experience and and going back to what I was saying about knowing when to to lift the voice to to drag it down when the 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 athletes go into the blocks and there's silence around the stadium and so you're almost whispering at that point Mm. ready ready to explode when when the gun goes fabulous moment in sport and so you have to you have to go with that kind of moment. And and it was much, much later when um, it became clear that I would be commentating for Five Live at London 2012, which yeah. was massive for me as a London boy, home Olympics and all of that. And Five Live were going crazy about it, as was the BBC generally. And it was a, a couple of years before that, one of the um, editors at Five Live had said to me, I was listening to you at a fight just recently and there was just a slight squeal in your voice as, as you got kind of overexcited. You might want to listen back to that and see if there's anything you want to do with that. And I was so um, so energised by London 2012 mm. and knowing that 
my name would be in the BBC's archives forever attached to London 2012, not knowing beforehand how special Super Saturday and everything else oh, would yeah, be. Yeah, of course. Take me but, back there. I mean, in a, in a, in a pre-Brexit world, I'd take me back to 2012 oh, any day of the week. Fabulous. And that feel-good factor for two yeah. weeks and, and uh, a fabulous moment. But I, So I went to um, a drama teacher that was recommended by somebody within um, the BBC's College of Journalism. Um, and sat with her for um, half a day, um, playing back clips of fights I'd done and athletics races that oh, I'd wow. done. Um, and it was really insightful, Nick, because um, she couldn't get a grip on why I was kind of squealing at fights, but not in stadiums for athletics. Right. Um, and, and so we went through this long process. Um, she was giving me all sorts of tips about the breathing. Uh, by, by now, I've been, you know, I've been commentating now for, for the best part of 15 years. Yeah, okay. Um, but, you know, this is one point I always make to, to any young commentator that asks me for advice. There's always, always room for improvement. And, and there's, unfortunately, always room for bad habits to take hold. And, and quite often, when you reach a certain level, nobody will tell you about those. You've got to find those you bad habits yourself. Yeah. Um, and, and, and it was this, not it wasn't so much a habit, because I didn't even know I was doing it. But this, this kind of, it just, just taking my voice to that, that, that area where it was sounding uncomfortable. Um, and she, she then said to me, Elspeth, her name was, and a very funny lady. And she said to me, just, just give me the background. Just give me a picture of where you're, where you're sat. And so I, so I said, well, in a stadium, I might be 50 yards away from the action. It's, you know, a, a huge track. It's the same as a, a football stadium, rugby stadium, in yep. terms of configuration of where they're playing areas. Whereas in boxing, I might be five or six feet away staring up at them. Getting covered in sweat and everything else, um, and and blood, and sometimes the odd tooth, and and she said to me well, that that's that's the key. You've just said that you're looking up, um, and so you're kind of stretching that muscle there, uh, and that's where you need to be extra careful about oh, wow. when you when you rise and you rise and you rise. Just think, you've always got half a second, whether you're on television or radio, you've always always got half a second to just take that extra breath or that pause or whatever it is and so that that was a year out from london 2012 and an invaluable lesson and the mm. first time i took all of that on board was actually for a monster fight it was david hay against vladimir klitschko in hamburg which was huge i mean the fight turned out to be a damp squib as so many sporting events do that you look forward to but yeah taking all of that into a big fight like that was one of the biggest challenges i've had in commentary and i don't remember just because you felt like you were armed with more more tools at your disposal in a way and more hassle in right, that yeah, okay. thinking not only about what i had to say but how i was going to say it yeah and the what you're going to say after a while tends to come naturally even though there's obviously this thought process going on but having to think about how you're going to say it as well mm. was a real challenge but i decided that i had to do it there and then if i put it off then i'd put it off again and again and we'd get round to 2012 and i'd still be doing this this kind of squealing yeah so, okay so it was really important to get that sorted by the time the biggest event of my i, I knew it would be the biggest event i i'd ever cover and whatever yeah. happens now we're in a fascinating heavyweight division situation at the moment but wherever that goes because of the breadth, because of the way the whole nation got involved, I'll never cover anything like London 2012. Mm, interesting. And and in terms of then managing the voices as you go into gigs now, is it something you warm up? Is it something that are, are there things that Elspeth did with you that, that you revisit? Yeah, in terms of the, the holding on to those breaths when you really are almost screaming, there is that just that that pause. To wait. I, I think it was a recent clip care. of the of the Ruiz fight where actually, just, you know, as it's all as it's all happening, I can because the, they obviously Five Live had a, had a camera on you, yeah, and yeah. I think I, now you're saying that I can actually watch back because I think there's a moment where you do just give it another half second, and those before, are those lessons before you go again. Yeah, those but, lessons are with me all these years on. So that was seven or eight years ago, and 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 that that stays with me, and, and that's helped me all the way through. Yeah. In terms of the two sports, I was chatting to, to John Hunt about, I called the sort of nature of a horse race a sort of linear commentary, for want of a better phrase, because it, you know, it has a start point and an end point that you see, uh, that you see coming ultimately. Um, and athletics races have that as well. 
boxing to a degree in terms of having 12 rounds of three minutes does, but obviously you could be doing three minutes or six minutes depending on how it goes. So is the approach in terms of energy slightly different and, and how you sort of know, obviously in 100 metres or 200 metres, it's, it's, it's your 10 seconds or your, or your you know, however many. But, but then in terms of boxing, it, it could be one length, it could be another, but, but you know it, there, there, there is a, at the very worst a predetermined length. Yeah, the challenge for the two sports, Nick, could could hardly be more different. Yeah, and athletics is, I think, very much like horse racing in yeah. that you could superimpose one of John's commentaries on any of the television races that you see, and the commentary would be very similar. Mm. Likewise, you could put my one hundred meters commentary at the Olympics, the final, laced over a TV picture mm. uh, and the commentaries would be very similar because the key in athletics and horse racing is identification first mm. of all before anything it's identification and then you can introduce any flair or flannel or flower or whatever you want to add whereas with boxing there is no identification problem yeah. but there is the issue of repetition it could be left right left right left right all night and that's where the challenge comes in boxing and and as i've said before in knowing when to introduce an anecdote, knowing that you might be in the middle of a lovely tale and one of the fellows ends up on his back and you've missed the key moment. Yeah. You know, on television, that's a mistake, but the viewer can still see what's going on. But yeah. on radio, you've missed the key moment. So that's that's a, a really significant difference between the two. And in, in terms of preparing for them... Um, generally, in athletics, um, I'm talking now about the championships... It's it's absolutely key to look after yourself in between the sessions, mm. um, and that mean whether that means sleep, proper food, getting out of the heats. Invariably, the championships are in hot countries, as are the Olympics. So between the morning session and the afternoon session, it's to get away, whether it's back to the hotel or just away from the stadium, and again overnight. Um, get as much sleep as is possible and, and up again and going in the morning. But you, you build a remarkable amount of stamina for, for championships like that. I sometimes wonder after a, a big fight and you're absolutely drained at the end of it, mm. I sometimes think, how on earth do I get up the next morning and go to the morning session and then the next evening and the morning yeah. after that? And I, but it's the adrenaline keeps you going. You, yeah, might, you might be so tired on the coach on the way to the the olympic stadium but once you get in there and you see the crowd walking towards the stadium you soon and the moment you, you pick up the microphone ready. and go this is this is my job to do this that's it cue commentator and that's yeah bang, you're gone yeah there you go um yeah so you're, you're not someone then who has a warm-up song like meatloaf that john hunt does which i love <laughs> not not one for you no i tend to um i mean i i um We'll go through, um, whether I, uh, I'm in a hotel or, or here at home, if, if the fight's in London, I'll, I'll just maybe read a page of a magazine and just, 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 just start reading. And get it clear. Just, just, just get it clear. And, and it's interesting. I was, I was reading um, over Christmas time Michael Caine's latest autobiography, and he was saying something similar like that and, and how, I mean, it, he's often reading words, if only reading in his head, because they're rehearsed lines, but... He says, you'll be surprised how many words you come across that actually don't suit your mouth. Yeah, and it's it's strange like that. Mm. So I just literally pick up a random magazine, whether it's Vogue or Boxing News or anything, just and, and just go through a random page that I've never seen before. To yeah. try, you know, because you don't know what's coming up in the next sentence. And so you just kind of get yourself relaxed and concentrated. I sometimes stick the television on and uh, on a news channel and then follow what's being said, yeah, like half a second behind, so yeah. that I'm then getting used to talk back. Yeah, okay. So as the and the reason it's a news channel is because it's constantly somebody's constantly talking. So yeah. I'm repeating what they're saying, just a split second after they've said it. Yeah. Um, and I can be stood here, and I remember one instance, my son came down and said, "What are you doing, Dad? You're going crazy. You're talking to yourself." And, 
but that that then gets me used to um you know that kind of quick thinking responding to talkback so yeah that's fascinating just, just little, little tools like that work you know yeah for those listening talkback is uh, is that is ultimately the director and uh, and people in the gallery who are talking to you about what's coming up and you get much more of it on television but we do get it on radio in yeah. particular you know what it, sort of talkback would you be getting through through something like boxing then apart from a producer set you know queuing you and letting you know how long it is until you're handing back to a, a presenter perhaps there'll is, be nothing is, nothing during a round right um and and i um i insist on that yeah right, um, because right. of the nature of, of radio again it's um and this is not to say it's it's more difficult than television it's, it's just different because mm. on radio in in boxing anyway and talk sports sometimes do it differently but we throughout history on the bbc long before me have done the three minutes with one voice the commentator's voice and then the summarizer comes in for the minute in between the rounds um so then towards you know with 10 seconds to go i might get in my ears let's go to the corner if one of the boxes has been knocked over for example we might go to his corner yeah see what his trainer's got to say to him about the whole recovery process and that that voice in the corner can be a really important part of bringing the event to somebody's car kitchen living room or or wherever those you know on radio we've got we've got noise and words to to components that's all we've got you yeah know? so to go to the corner and to, to to get a bit more of the arena into your kitchen is is really important yeah and athletics wise then i guess there's going to be no chat during the the 10 seconds or 18 seconds it, it depends if it's at somewhere like the olympics and it's for example uh, a 5000 meter race which lasts 12 and a half 13 minutes then there's scope to go to another venue then that might be, but I'll be I'll be pre warned by that. that yeah, might, okay. There's a there's a cycling final might be finishing, so you know, be ready to to hand to the the velodrome, and we'll we'll come back to you after that kind of thing. So it would be fairly fairly straightforward talk back in that sense. And they, they they wouldn't do that unless it was unless it was a Brit in the final and it was the last lap at the velodrome as opposed to the like they 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 wouldn't leave me at a crucial point of the race yeah so that's and but that's their decision to take and i, and I go you know once once the message appears in my ears then i've got to go with that yeah and i guess neither of those sports are ones where you're necessarily needing to be fed additional much additional information during the actual sport itself because obviously in rugby and team sports you you've got someone who might be feeding you replacement substitution information so that you can incorporate that and that might be coming through talkback but i don't imagine there's there's much of that is there what what's changed in boxing um with the advent of twitter and instagram and you know those social media platforms is the scoring of fights as they go on so i'll occasionally be handing a note i remember a specific example just before christmas when tyson fury fought to a draw with Deontay Wilder and after four or five rounds we had Fury winning just about everything it might have been 5-1 at halfway it might have been at best 4-2 but I was working with the former middleweight champion Andy Lee and the Mexican trainer Abel Sanchez and they both had Fury streets and streets ahead as did I um and then I got a note from my producer, Jack, to say uh, American journalists all have Wilder in front. So I passed this to Andy and we just, I mean, as we're talking, we're just leaning back. Whoa, I mean, what fight are they are they watching? Yeah. And at that time, Nick, that's where you have to hang on to your own belief and, you know, own experience and, and conviction about mm. what you're watching. Do you take heed of the American journalists sat behind you, obviously seeing a very different fight? Yeah. Or, or do you go with what you've been telling the audience for the last six rounds. But we do feed in what American journalists are saying because then that paints a picture, if you like, of confusion and, and maybe adds to yeah. to the adrenaline, the, the excitement of the whole the whole event. So yeah. that's 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 changed. That's specifically changed in the last five, six years where people have, have got very animated on Twitter about and, and, and you know a, a little bit geeky about scoring round by round by round because they feel now that that's that's a way they can get involved in the event you know? yeah feel more engaged um you reported on the olympics in sydney and athens you took over from from john rawling eventually at five live when when he moved to tv as you mentioned um you called the the 100 meter final in beijing in 2008 with bolt skipping across the line um i've seen a video that uh, that five live produced where you talk about covering a hundred meters final and and looking with the naked eye at the start probably going to the or sorry at the monitor at the start going naked eye as they're sort of coming through the middle of the race and then flicking back to the monitor for the end and 
I was thinking to myself, I'd be too worried in going from one to the other that I'd sort of miss something. Just uh, Obviously, you know where the monitor is and you know, but d- does that take a bit of practice? Yes, it does uh, and takes experience over years. And it depends. <coughs> excuse me and it depends where you are mm. in the in the commentary seats if you look at an olympic games in the home straight if you were to go onto the back straight most people as as viewers wouldn't see this occasionally you'll get a panoramic view of the stadium and you'll notice that as much as two-thirds of the home straight on one tier is taken up by the media mm. so You could be anywhere from directly above the finish line, as I was at London 2012, which was perfect for naked eye finishes. Yeah. Or you could be 20 metres back, so you could be at the 80-metre point of the race, and therefore by the time they get to the finish line, your angle is severely warped, so you can't dare do that with the naked eye. Mm. But what you do have, whether I'm on air or not with the the opening round heats, um, there aren't so many these days because they pruned the number of entrants. But in days gone by, there'd be seven or eight, maybe even a dozen first round heats. And even though they were won easily by A and other, you would just use that to get that that sequence going of naked eye monitor, naked eye monitor. and, And because they actually run quicker on the screen than they do in real life. I don't know if you know what I mean by this, but uh, when you're yeah, actually can... watching them going down a track, you've actually got more breathing space in your head as to the description. Whereas on television, because it's, it, you know, it's, it, it, because of the, the angle of the camera, it all seems so quick. Whereas if you look out onto the track, it gives you that extra. It might only be half a second, but you know, half a second is the diff- it's probably two and three times the distance between first and last. So. Yeah. And it's five ten percent extra time in a race that's only got nine seconds on it. Yeah, yeah absolutely. That's interesting. Do you uh, do you get nervous ahead of those big ones? Yes. A good yeah. nervous. Yeah, and it's um, it's almost like a friend. Uh, one of the very early interviews I did in my career was with um, an old heavyweight champion called Floyd Patterson, who'd come over here with a boxer who was um, taking on Lennox Lewis. Uh, and he notoriously had problems with nerves, but he he came to counter that. And he said, in the end, the nerves were his friend. And he got to the stage where he was nervous if he didn't get nervous. And and I know exactly what that is. You know, by mid-afternoon, you get, if not a knot in the stomach, just that little rumbling feeling that that it's a big one. And, and then I, I kind of turn it around. And as I'm the other week, you know, going to Madison Square Garden for Anthony Joshua against Andy Ruiz. And bear in mind, we didn't know anything like what was going on. So I was very much making the night one of, well, at least I'm doing a heavyweight fight. It might, mm. be, it might be a crap fight, but hey, I'm doing a heavyweight fight at Madison Square Garden. The first fight I ever remember watching on television from the States was Ali versus Frazier at wow. the Garden yeah. Fight of the Century. So there's all this kind of, you know, all this kind of emotional tie line for me. Um, and and just walking towards the garden that night, you know, this this huge edifice that that that, that sits on the edge of of Seventh Avenue. Just walking across the road, we stayed in a hotel across the road, and I just thought, you know, this is well worth getting nervous about. This is this is really really special. And I said on our podcast that if you told that that kid, you know, back then watching that fight, that one day you'll be sat there at ringside doing a commentary. I mean, hey, yeah. Dream time. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. 
That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. So, you know, I, 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 I really make the, the nerves work for me. And, but it is a, it's, it's a sense and a realisation of just how big these these events are yeah and it also i think a little bit of that adrenaline it, it sharpens you as well doesn't yeah. it? it it makes you not jumpy but it makes you able to just use that energy in in the right way i think and, yeah and that's often you often notice then when the adrenaline has has done its job and, and it's the end of of whatever event and i've done it commentating on on big rugby games and at the end of it people go wow that was amazing like south africa japan that i did in, in 2015 massive upset and everyone goes oh you know everyone's excited wants to celebrate the game go for a drink coffee and like, i'm ready for bed immediately yeah. i'm yeah. done yeah and that, that can be the feeling of it um you work a lot you mentioned earlier obviously working with with co-commentators and, and having those those people who certainly in boxing will fill that minute and you work a lot with steve bunce who's a, a familiar voice to, to people via five live um i'm interested in the sort of quality of of the two of your voices because for a big bloke he's actually got quite a high tenor voice has, yeah. has, has buncey and and you seem capable of of conveying a lot of emotion through your South London tones as well. From um, you know covering Muhammad Ali's funeral procession, which I know I know choked you up and, and and that sort of thing. So, would you call yourself an emotional bloke? Yeah, yeah, and I think that's an important part of of commentary mm. um, to to try to bring that sense of um, what it means to those that are in the ring and, and what the repercussions might be for them. Um, and I've worked a lot in recent years with Andy Lee. Um, and he said to me, I couldn't quite work out why you got so jumpy and excited, in particular as as the fellas walked by. I mean, we have such a privilege in boxing simply because of the configuration of the playing area, for want of a better phrase, mm. is that they they walk past us almost. In, in some cases, you could reach out and, and you know give them a fist bump with their gloves. We're, we are that close. Yeah. And that moment for me is, is it's a bit like a Walter Mitty moment as well in that I wanted to be those blokes. I wanted to be making that walk yeah. and wasn't nearly good enough. And I kind of get, so I get what they must have been feeling as they were leaving the dressing room from my schoolboy days in schoolboy championships and, and club championships and junior ABA championships. So you're sort how of with I them. felt when I left the dressing room. So who knows how they feel after these weeks of build up and interviews and people telling them who's going to win and who's going to lose and all of that filtered in. And that, that I think is, is, is what grabs me as they walk towards the ring. And, um, and I, that, that I can then relay into, into athletics as well, because I've, I've spent a lot of time around athletes and, Alison Kerbishlew, who I work with a lot, a 400-meter runner, is very close friends with Sally Gunnell. Um, and she tells me this tale about Sally Gunnell always used to feel, and here's an Olympic and world champion, that when there was a full start in her race, she would then walk back behind the blocks, get ready to reassemble. And as the starter would then say, on your marks for the second time, her first thought was, bloody hell, the race would have been over by now. Yeah, And that made me think, look, if world champions and Olympic champions are allowed to feel like that, you know, and I've heard Christina Horugu saying um, at one of the uh, Olympic festivals after she'd won gold in 2008, how she couldn't sleep the night before, um, that, you know, there, there is that emotion involved in sport. And if you can just in some way connect with that, and that's how I do it you know, from my experiences in boxing, but I can relay those having spoken to so many people in athletics as well. I think emotion is such an important part of sport and a crucial part of, of sports commentary. Yeah, and, and always more of a help than a hindrance? No, sometimes you can get 
I think you can get too involved. You can get too passionate about a particular subject, whether it's a team or an athlete or a boxer. Um, I, I'm not one for we, um, even though I'm British. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, and whether that's BBC training or whether that sounds pompous I just um, no I'm with you because I like the idea that it it, it costs you more as a journalist who's having an opinion on something rather than a cheerleader and I think that and then if you you know if if you go bonkers about somebody who crosses the line and two years time that athlete fails a drug test um, and that's the commentary they have to play out then you know and Mike um, you were cheerleading back then how do you feel now about so and so failing a drug test I mean that's an extreme but I I just think that we should you know, we should stay impartial. Let let the viewers and the listeners make their minds up as to who they want to shout and scream for. Yeah. So approaching the big moments, then you've uh, you've obviously had a fair few of them in in covering, particularly on the boxing side. I mean, obviously the the athletics there've been a fair few as well. But but covering the likes of George Groves, Carl Froch, Klitschko, Joshua Ruiz, as you mentioned. Um, how do you, how sort of I was I was thinking I mean I mentioned earlier you don't know whether a round whether a, a boxing match is going to be you know a few rounds or, or go the full distance. Um, how much can you anticipate when you need to go for it, uh, or or make it clear that you know this is the key moment in a bout versus perhaps like you like you touched on having time to slip in an anecdote or, or what have you? Yeah, it, that that is a, a, an interesting question because I think that comes with experience. And I'll give you an example, Nick, of just recently um, we were recording a podcast in a restaurant after Ruiz had beaten Joshua. Um, and it was one of those nights. I mean, uh, you were saying there about how there are times when you just want to disappear and go to bed. But this was one of those where because it was such a monumental story and by the time we'd got away from the arena, by the time we'd waited for Joshua to emerge from his dressing room, which took two hours, Britain was waking up. So we then had demands to to talk to breakfast programs and, and the like. And, and when it had all finished, it was about half past three in the morning, so half past eight in the UK. We'd done all we needed to do for our breakfast programs. Uh, and we finally got uh, a bite to eat. Um, and the producer, Jack, who I've mentioned before, said to me, during the third round, you said that Joshua was going through a worse crisis than he did, than he a worse crisis than he endured against Vladimir Klitschko. And he said to me, "Why did you say that? How did you know that?" Yeah. Um, and I don't have an answer. All I said to him was, "I can only offer you a sense, coupled with experience, of of what I was seeing unfolding." in the ring at that time because it it lasted another four rounds there was plenty of scope for Joshua to have come back and won Um, but I went with that sense Um, and I couldn't have prepared for that Um, because for all and, and for the next couple of years now I will be much more prepared for a shock but as I said to you my 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 feelings going into Madison Square Garden that night were, you know, this is going to be a very ordinary fight. Just, you know, let's savour the fact that you're doing a heavyweight fight at Madison Square Garden. Whoa, and all this kind of happened. So, look, maybe I should have been prepared, for, especially in heavyweight boxing. So, you know, more the fool me. But I think sometimes as well there is that, that element of you kind of ought to be saying without the profanity what the fans would be saying. Yeah. So, you know, the the F me without the yeah the F me. Yeah. Um and, and and so if you've if you've prepared for Joshua to go over, um I don't know if would there be that same sense of Well it's almost expectation management, isn't it? Because you yeah. don't want to go in as a commentator going, This is going to be the most ridiculous fight ever because then yeah. there's a high chance you end up with egg on your face or it just doesn't it's it just falls flat and, and, and you're still left wanting, which almost means you've probably brought an experience to the listeners that is they feel a bit let down by yeah. it. Whereas yeah, if you go in just with the excitement of Madison Square Garden and, and being there and, and yeah. doing that, yeah. then then you're already setting a nice a nice platform and then anything that goes on top of that's a bonus so then yeah. I guess if you can take people on the, uh, on that journey in that way then 
then everything, yeah. as, as I say, is, is, is more than they bargained for. And how often has that happened in, in, in your experience, in anybody's experience, that the match you're looking forward to and have been looking forward to for months turns into a damp squib? Mm. And the one that you don't even recognise and you think, well, let's just get this one done, absolutely erupts. Yeah. You know, on that day, for example, the day of the, the Joshua fight, the big sporting event in this country and across five live, and we, we were just almost an add-on, was Liverpool against Tottenham in the Champions League final. Yeah. And that turned out to be not, not so much a dud, but it wasn't anything like oh, people no, it was, wanted yeah. it to be, maybe because of the, the penalty so early on, but whatever. Yeah. The big story of the day, so unexpectedly, was ours. Uh, you know, when I say a day, a day and a half, if you take into account the the time zones. But that that was, you know, just an example of how with sport you just never know and that's the joy of what we do you really just never never know yeah and and how do you feel this sort of slight slight tangential question but i'm just replaying that weekend in my head and i was in prague playing in a touch rugby tournament um which is one of my my favorite hobbies and uh and we watched the champions league game then we went out to celebrate after the tournament that we played and i think i was still stood outside an irish bar in prague when the fight started coming on so we then watched that but one of the first things partly because I'm a commentary geek but I also know that an awful lot of friends of mine that are sports fans and and will listen to sports radio will do if they weren't listening to it at the time will will go back and and these days with social media they'll they'll hunt out the clips that they're going to put out of how did Mike Costello call that last, that particular round and it must be an, a tremendous honor to know that so many people want 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 the the right version their right version of of how these things have been done or called is is to go and seek the one that you've done yeah i i suppose so i mean i had no idea as i say going in um on that particular night that that anything like that would happen and and this kind of phenomenon of of recording commentators is it it seems to be now a growing trend Mm. um and it's certainly um taken awareness of me to an audience um, that previously either didn't know I existed or, or didn't know boxing on the radio existed. And I know that because of some of the responses to it on Twitter or wherever are along the lines of well-played Buncey for not interrupting Mike. <laughs> yeah. And therefore, those who know sport on the radio know that in boxing, as I've said earlier, the three minutes is taken up by the commentator yeah. and the one minute by the summariser. And you could see him jumping up and I down know. for that last he 30, desperately wanted to get in, you know, <laughs> yeah. desperately wanted to get he in. He was very good. And even when yeah. the bell's gone, because I think it takes you maybe 10 seconds, eight seconds or something to wrap just, it up, just yes. to wrap it up. And then yeah. he comes in and it's, yeah, yeah, it's brilliant watching him hopping up yeah. and down, yeah. waiting, <laughs> waiting to get in. Um, you mentioned, obviously, the, the comparisons in the two sports. Do you... Uh, are either of them ones where obviously there's statistical analysis and, and that sort of thing that you can do for both and, and how they've done in previous fights, previous races over that season. Is there much call for, for scripting any opening and closing moments in, in either discipline? No, but I, I'll sometimes have something in my head. I remember um, being on a flight back from one of the very early events I covered with David Coleman um, and he was joshing and joking about um, various elements of uh, the job and but one thing he said um, stuck with me and he said as long as you've got your first line um, doesn't have to be written down just as long as you've got your first line for when the presenter hands to you then you'll flow get that one right um, and I, I've always said to whoever it is at, um, at the Olympic Games Mark Pugach, John Inverdale whoever's handing over for the big ones you know the 100, 100, the 100 metres final or whatever please just give me a dry handover. Don't right. give me something that I've got to respond to because yeah. I'll, I'll get, depending on how the night has gone, you know, what's happening in the, in the stadium. With, with Usain Bolt, you, you could never really be sure um, how the crowd would react, what he would be doing at the time in terms of gestures and waving. And So I said, just leave me to respond dry. Don't, don't come to me with a it's question. It's going to be a big race, isn't so it, Michael? Yeah. Yeah. And so I have to then answer your question before I get to actually what's happening down there. So just, you know, Mike, one of, that's that's all it needs. It's the 100 metres final. Here's Mike. Yeah. And then I'll, you know, I'll adjust that, that first line thought I've had in my head. Sometimes just dismiss it completely because of it's been overtaken by events and yeah. what, what Bolt's doing down there or what else has happened during the evening. For example, Super Saturday, if I'd had a line in my head about Mo Farah, 
starting the 10,000 metres, well, within the last half an hour, we'd just won two gold medals, one of which we pretty much knew we'd win with Jessica Ennis. But Greg Rutherford, although not a surprise, was a long, long way from a certainty. So here we are with Mo Farah on the start line, about to win Britain's third gold medal in possibly 45 minutes. So anything you've prepared, you know, that's when you must jettison, just let it go and just yeah. go with the crowd and the feel. And, and we had a 10,000-metre race that was like 25 laps constantly of, of close to a 100-metre race in terms of the noise. You know, yeah. and that was a fascinating challenge because quite often, um, on the rare occasions we do a 10,000-metre race, unless Mo Farah's been in it, it'll be 20 laps of comment and then last four or five laps of commentary. Yeah, okay. Whereas with Mo, it was that you had to go with the crowd. I've said earlier, you've got noise and words, and if the crowd are going bonkers, you can't be having a conversation because everybody at home is saying, well, what's going on? Why are they all cheering? Tell yeah. me why they're cheering. So yeah. you, you have to react. And it was reacting for 25 laps for Mo <laughs> Farah because they were, you know, he would move up two places and they'd go bonkers. You yeah. know? And then he'd drop back two places and there'd be this slight lull. And so you'd... It was one of those where, you know, you're constantly updating the field, which you wouldn't normally do in a 10,000-meter race because that would become tiresomely, you know, just so boring Mm. and and monotonous. Whereas with Farah, it mattered. Mm. So there are different different approaches to to, to different different races and different occasions. But that was one that just swarmed all over us that night. I remember going to to the arena that night. We knew that... um, Jess Ennis, you know, in boxing parlance, only had to stand up to win. Um, and this is when also, you know, we're talking here about commentary, but sometimes, um, you know, the summariser or the presenter can be a really important part of the call, whether it, again, on TV or or on radio. And, and you know, we, we knew throughout the Olympics that we would be uh, embraced by listeners who didn't necessarily know every single sport, whether it's volleyball, cycling, athletics. And we were trying to do an idiot's guide to heptathlon and the seven events. And here's Jess Ennis leading after six events. And Steve Backley was one of our summarizers, was doing all the technical stuff. And, and Mark Pugat said to him, so Steve, just sum up where, where Jess is. And so he started talking about the points and then, and she's this far ahead. And, and Mark just cut in and he said, so she's got four putts from 20 feet. That's what you're saying. <laughs> and it was just a lovely analogy. That yeah. just, and, and it's that, that, kind of got the flavor of the night going that she has my my game only had to stand up to win so she wins the gold medal the long jumps going mad over there and that was uh that was a really really special night a special team and we knew it was a really special night because there were people like john McEnroe, lennox lewis linford christie hovering behind just basically looking for a spare seat as close to the action as they could get and yeah. we were right on the finish line yeah. at the back of the first tier so I mean if you could plant yourself in an Olympic stadium at any time in history that's where you'd put yourself yeah. for the best possible view yeah absolutely well uh well possibly from 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 the best to uh, a, a slight change of of, of uh, perspective but maybe any any moments you've been less happy with um in terms of the the experience you've had so far yeah they've they've been plenty and I'm uh, I guess um most commentators would say that over a course of, I mean, 1995, those first world championships. So I'm getting close to a quarter of a century now. But um, I kind of look at it like athletes and boxers that sometimes that's a measure of who you are, that the, the way you respond to to adversity is, um, is key. Mm. Um, and hopefully over time, and I guess I wouldn't have been doing it for this length of time if if I'd got it wrong too often. So hopefully over time you've got enough money in the bank in terms of respect and and the right ones to uh to allow the bosses to, to keep faith, you know? Yeah. And do you have you had any moments where a small error or anything sort of creeps in that that you then need to you know move past pretty quickly and, and forget about or you know, someone's always said to me, don't apologise on air because it just doesn't sound good. But if you've made the error, move past it or correct it very quickly without necessarily apologising. Yeah, I mean, I can't Had think you- of an instance, but I know exactly what you think. I, I can, you know, just in, in, in the back of my mind, you know, in the middle of a round, maybe saying something that that wasn't quite factually correct or, or, or didn't match the action or whatever it was. And I'm kind of thinking I'd like to go back over that. And mm. 
uh, I hope the fight doesn't finish in this round because that's the commentary that's going to be played out kind of thing. Yeah, it, okay. You know, it, to, it might be something that's huge to us yeah. in terms of how we do the job. And yet the listener would be yawning at home, hadn't, hadn't noticed the thing. But that, those kind of... Um, those kind of mishaps, I think, are, are, are fairly routine. But, yeah. but you just hope they, they, they don't happen too often. And, and I don't think there's um, – maybe there would be um, a difference if the audience would. I mean, I heard you talking at length to Clive Tilsley about how, you know, he knows that there's 10, 15, 20 million people watching a World Cup semi-final. Well, you know, when I did London 2012 – 20 million people watched Usain Bolt win the 100 metres. Now, that means that on Five Live, maybe 20 were listening to me. <laughs> but I, I, I guarantee you I was as nervous as Steve Cram. Um, why? Well, because it's integrity, it's, yeah. you know, dignity and, and just caring about what you do. And, and at, at some stage in the future, um, people will be listening back to that. But also, there they would have been a fair... I mean... I, you know, I'm jesting. There would have been a fair audience, but when 20 million are watching on television, there ain't much left for radio. No, I but see. at the same time, it's um, you know. It, uh, but some people will always be in their cars or or, or not round the TV. And, yeah, and, and and I think you look. I haven't done um, television to that extent, so I wouldn't know what it is to sit down. But I, I don't at any stage, and it'd be interesting to know from um, Clive and Crammy and these people whether they do anywhere in their psyche is the thought of that that massive audience and look I, I know with an audience like that that you know any glitch will be will be spotlighted much more so but yeah you're a humble bloke you uh, you obviously know that you've you've hit some fantastic notes over over commentary over the years are there any when we talk about the ones that we might want to want to do again or that sort of thing are there any moments that you've listened back to and and, and you particularly savor yeah the the um london 2012 was um you know, it was really special. And to, to get Super Saturday um, right on the night, um, even even tiny elements in the race of the, the 10,000 metres, as I say, Jess Ennis was um, in an 800-metre race and she was going to win as long as she stood up. Uh, Greg Rutherford in the long jump, um, completely different type of commentary. But with Mo Farah, one of the... The big challenges for a long distance race like that is identification because there aren't any 10,000 meter races on the circuit anymore because television doesn't allow for that length of race. It, everything is being being contracted and, and um, just ne- from next season, there won't even be any 5,000 meter races. And it means that, okay, so a lot of those athletes do double up 5,000 and 10,000, but it meant that a lot of those athletes I hadn't seen for a long time, if ever before. Yeah. So the identification process is absolutely key. And okay, Mo Farah has won the race, so that's fine. And it's who cares about the rest? Had he been beaten, that Ethiopian, Kenyan, whoever would have been kind of public enemy number one. And had that been misidentified by yeah. me, as, as he, hey, another runs across the line and I've got the name wrong, then that's a massive, yeah. you know, on a, on a really, really massive night. Who was it that spoiled the British party? Well, not the guy that Mike Costello said. Yeah. You know, there's that. So there are different kinds of challenges all the time. And so, um, and, and the, again, you don't get many chances at 10,000 metres, you know, to, to build and build and build like that. And you don't, ever get chances to do a 10,000 metres where the the concentration is full on for 25 laps, as I said, because it was Mo Farah, because we'd already won two gold medals that night, then um, it became a different kind of race. And mm. so that was, uh, that was, uh, that was a real challenge. And, and um, sometimes it's, it's a relief to come away unscathed. And then afterwards you realise it just, just getting it done was the, was the first important <laughs> point. And then after that, you can, take whatever flack or praise comes your way you know? yeah very nicely put um who out there do you do you rate these days what what sort of sports do you enjoy listening to when it's when it's not the boxing athletics that you're involved with um i think the standard of football commentary in this country uh on radio and television is is very very high um and i i suspect that's because of the explosion of the coverage of football over the years there mm. are so many professional football commentators now in a way that there just wasn't the scope in in you know they're not too distant past yeah uh, and i think uh, that the, the football standard here is is 
is very, very strong. TV and radio. Uh, I think uh, I'm, I'm a big horse racing fan, and you know, John Hunt is um, is exceptional. As is, uh, would you call him his counterpart on television, Richard Hoyles? Mm-hmm. Um, I was watching uh, some coverage on ITV. Um, I'm not a, um, a student of form or anything like that. I just I, I happen to to really enjoy the sport. And there was an, an occasion not not too long ago within the last couple of years where they were doing commentary from two meetings one of the meetings was york and they had an issue with a commentator there they couldn't get through to him and richard hoyles literally picked up his racing post and did the commentary like which he clearly hadn't prepared for now i know from my experience of doing athletics and boxing that once you're in the sport you are absolutely in the sport and so he would pick it up and he would have known all of those names of the because it was a big race i think yeah. it was a particular race it might have been the Ebor Handicap or something like that at York so it was a race where he would have known all the runners all the jockeys and the colours and all of that but to just suddenly pick that up with a moment's notice mm. and, and just do that commentary as if he had prepared all night with charts and stats and everything was was really good there are very very good operators out there and, and I think the standard is growing all the time and it's changing and I was listening to Clive talking about he's not a fan of um, Fletch and Macker and that kind of um, personalised stuff but I, th- I do think that's that's kind of where commentary will go in, in the in the social media age I think we're going to have more and more of that where where just just thinking about the the success of podcasts and and the the matey chummy stuff that really does seem to go down well i think that's going to infiltrate commentary more and more yeah as as people of my generation and clive slightly older than me but as as, as we move on that next breed coming through who've grown up with phones mm. um will have a slightly different um approach to it all as long as Everybody holds on to those key components. You know that that information is absolutely the prime. Yeah, the prime well, key. It's uh, it's been quite nice, almost humbling on my behalf, to find out how many people within the sporting commentary world have been have been listening to series one acute commentator going. This has turned into a bible of information as to how to do it. <laughs> yeah. and I, I didn't quite do this to upskill the rest of the competition, <laughs> yeah. uh, but uh, but it seems to be turning out that way. Um, you, uh, you've obviously had the experience in the sports that you've had. Is there anything out there that you would have liked to have had the chance to commentate on? Mm, the Grand National. Okay. Yeah. So the, the horse racing side. It's one is... of those events that, that stops the nation. Yeah. You know, I don't have um, the background in racing or in, in any other sport, but it's, you know, it's strange. I don't have any passion to do, uh, you know, an Ashes Test Series, a, a Football World Cup final. But there's just something, I think it's related to the difficulty of it, but go all the way going back to watching it as a kid with my dad and it's it's this great kind of festival event. And I think it's it's just a bloody difficult thing to do and I'd love to have a crack at it. Yeah. I mean, I realise that, you know, on radio and television you have three and four commentators dotted around the course. Well, it's quite a unique commentary challenge in that sense as well. Well, in the sense it? that, you know, in, in virtually everything we do, the key is who wins. Um but in the national, you know, it's so, so important because everybody's got at least a quid on it. Yeah. It's, it's so important to get the fallers right from the first fence to the last. The fallers are as important as who's up at front, up at the front. So yeah. that's, that's such a challenge, such a challenge. And, get, you know, down the years, everybody who's done it, whether it's on the BBC or, or ITV, wherever, have been just outstanding. Racing commentators generally. And I know a lot of them are working every day of the week, you know, at courses. And so they're, you know, they're, they're well-groomed and they're, they're well-practiced. But even so, when it comes around to, to big races like that, um, that's when, when they prove themselves to be, to be really special. And I know there are difficult jobs in every sport, and within every sports commentary, but the Grand National would take some shifting as the hardest, I think. Yeah, okay, good one, good one. Um, finally then, you, uh, whenever you decide to hang up the microphone in, uh, in my slight commentary fantasy land, you get the chance to, to pick one last gig, one last event perhaps. It could be you know, however long the event goes on for. Um, I can get a sense of where you might go with this, but your last, your last event to call, what would, what would you love that to be? Can I go back in time? 
Oh, well, well, I'm guessing London 2012 is going to Well, I'd, I'd love to go back to 1974 and commentate on the Rumble in the Jungle. And of course. Against Foreman. I'd if, love you to for all of our sakes. If you, if you could just give me one opportunity to go back in time and just to be there for that whole circus, you know, the, the When We Were Kings and everything, just to be around. And just that, the noise of the, you know, the darkness of an African dawn and the two men making their way to the ring and... To go back there would be would be really special. But another Olympics in this country, yeah, that's not going to happen in my in my time in the game. But that that would be that would be a dream. And I suppose the next best would be a fight of the magnitude of say Anthony Joshua against Tyson Fury at Wembley Stadium. But at the moment, that doesn't have the appeal it had on May the thirty first. But if Joshua comes back and beats Ruiz. And if Tyson Fury beats Deontay Wilder, dream time. <laughs> come, come back to me. Then I might have to walk away. If that's Fury against Joshua at Wembley Stadium, I think I might have to walk away after that because it ain't getting any better. <laughs> <laughs> I love hearing that. Well, listen, I hope it continues to get better. I'm so grateful for your time and, and, uh, and that you maintain you know, good health and great events for many years to come because, it, it, you know, as you mentioned, commentary has, has seemed to have become more into the, 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 the scope of people over the last few years. I'm certainly not, not delaying that process by doing a, a podcast series on it. Um, we're probably not matey enough on this for it to be a popular podcast. It's it's too old fashioned. <laughs> just two people having a Q and A Q&A chat. But uh, but yeah, it's it's been you know brilliant to see how I think the sporting public out there digest sport and actually see the components that go into it. And I think uh, I think it's been it's been wonderful seeing how your work around the ring, particularly I think on on radio, has really lit up that sport for people at home and and how people seek out your commentary. Um, it's been a, a joy to spend time with you, Mike. Thanks very much for your time. Thanks for taking the time. Well, wasn't it worth taking the time? That is right up there for me as one of the best episodes of Q Commentator, I think. Um, partly just because of the fantastic mix of intensity, of levity, of craftsmanship. And that voice, Mike's voice, with that gently velvet quality when he's talking in more lower tones, when it's quiet. But as we all know from his commentary, with such authority, passion and emotion when he gets going. My huge thanks to Mike Costello for his time and for being a brilliant, brilliant guest. Um, So this is the bit where I have to confess that there's going to be another little hiatus in Q Commentator. I mentioned I'm in Japan. Don't forget to download the rugby report if you're into your rugby um, but uh, it means I'm going to be out here for another few weeks and then when I get back I'm just going to put wheels into motion to get a few of the voices together that uh, well that were too busy really over our sporting summer to be able to get recorded so uh, it'll probably be a, a few weeks maybe a couple of months but uh, we will be back to finish series two because I do like a six-part series and we're only three in on this one so um, thank you for your patience um, you're a loyal bunch out there and I really really appreciate you uh, you're taking the time to listen um be great to hear what you thought of this episode at q commentator or at nick heath sport uh, to let me know what you thought and um, look forward to bringing you more sporting voices very soon but in the meantime take care of yourselves and bye for now this has been a rugby media production planning for your next trip elevate your travel style with quince quince has all the jet setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway like european linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health-monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinarian developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 